Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. All right, happy Hanukkah, everyone. So good to see so many of you. Chak Sameach, Chak Sameach. I want to make it clear, as I always do, that this should be much more of a discussion than just me lecturing. I don't like to hear my voice uh, too much, even though my wife would disagree with that. <laughs> but uh, I do want to hear you. I do want to hear your questions mainly, your disagreements, whatever you may be. That's true learning, because in Hebrew, the word for teaching is the same word as learning. And if I can't hear you, I can't learn from you, and I can't really teach. Word is lilmod, same word as lelamed, uh, to teach. To learn and to teach is the same word, because it should be a two-way street, so really, I'm uh, encouraging any questions that may come along. So tonight's topic is actualizing your unique life potential. I don't um, profess to be uh, an expert at... Uh, psychology or anything of that kind, all I can do really is bring you some of the Jewish references and see what our own heritage has to say about this. But first I'll start with a quick story, a story about an old Jew who came from an old town in Poland. He moved to America. He thought that here in America can start his life anew. He can actually actualize his potential. He said, I'm going to make up all of these things about me because here I'm a big macher. He comes and he says to people, look, I'm a very wealthy man, I'm, I'm very successful, I have all these titles, I have seven PhDs. Um, then he goes to shul, and there he tells people, I'm, very, I'm a very VIP, a very important man, and by the way, I'm also a Kohen. Of course, he wasn't a Kohen, but I'm also a Kohen. When the rabbi find out about this new man, he said, I have to meet him. He comes out, he meets him, and he, he recognizes him from the old country. <laughs> so the rabbi tells him, I don't understand. You went a Kohen in Poland. How could you be a Kohen now? <laughs> and the man tells him, Rabbi, if you can come to America and call yourself a rabbi, I can come to America and call myself a Kohen. <laughs> but that's the story, and I think it has a lot to do with the first point that I really want to explore together with you today. Um, I will bring you four general points, four different perspectives on how we can actualize our life potential uh, according to Judaism. But first, I want to start with the text of Hanukkah. Since tonight is the first night of Hanukkah, why not? The first text of Hanukkah is really, or the text of Hanukkah is really a prayer that we've included during the Amidah uh, that is recited every day. That is the Va'al Nisim prayer. It was a prayer instituted by the Talmudic sages some 2,000 years ago. And this is what they write about Hanukkah. But I'm, what I'm most intrigued about is the introduction that they give to this prayer. It seems to be an introduction that is a little too fluffy, at least for me. And at the same time, it doesn't speak of the values that we seem to embrace as Jews. Let's read the prayer. We'll ask the questions, and then we'll explore those four perspectives. Who wants to read? Please. Again, I shouldn't be the only one speaking. So who wants to read? The first, please, the first reference, Valanisim, go ahead. Right, okay, so that's the introduction I want to focus on, but let's read the actual story as told in this prayer. Continue, go ahead. Israel to make them forget your Torah and violate the decrees of your will. 
But you, in your abounding mercies, stood by them in the time of their distress. You waged their battles, defended their rights, and avenged the wrong done to them. You delivered the mighty into the hands of the weak, the many into the hands of the few, the impure into the hands of the pure, the wicked into the hands of the righteous, and the wanton sinners into the hands of those who occupy themselves with your Torah. Mm -hmm. You made a great and holy name for yourself in your world, and expected a great deliverance and redemption for your people, Israel, to this very day. Then your children entered the shrine of your house, cleansed your temple, purified your sanctuary, kindled lights in your holy courtyard, and instituted these eight days of Hanukkah to give thanks and praise to your great name. Okay, thank you, thank you. So that's the story. Uh, very well condensed, again, by the uh, sages of 2,000 years ago. But it's the introduction that I failed to understand. First, I understand that we thank God for all of these things, the miracles, the redemption, the mighty deeds, the saving act, and so on. But what? Were the rabbis purely trying to be poetic? Is there really anything behind all of these beautiful, uh, glorious adjectives, the mighty deeds, the saving acts? Oh, the miracles of redemption, just say we thank you, God, for all of the miracles that you gave our ancestors during uh, the times of the Maccabees. That's all. Secondly, and for the wars, aren't we peace-loving people? What does this mean? We sing it. Right? I won't sing it for you because the windows will start breaking. But milchamot, wars. Since when do we thank God for wars? We don't want wars. We're peace-loving people. What does this mean? And I want to relate, I want, I'll come back to this question at the very end. But I, I, I do think that, no, the sages weren't trying to be just poetic. Every single line here, ala nisim, ala purkan, ala gvurot, symbolize four ways in which, yes, we can actualize our life potential. We can recreate a Hanukkah miracle for ourselves Today, in our lives, not just then, in the times of the Maccabees. How so? Through these pathways. First one, al Nisim. Second, al Purkan. Third, Gevurot and Teshuot. And fourth, al Milchamot. I think, again, not coincidentally, of course, we have four pathways here in this prayer that really show us and indicate how we are to actualize our life potential. The first one, Allah Nisim. We thank God for the miracles. What miracles? Not just that the Maccabees defeated the Greeks, even though they were the fewer, and the Greeks were the many. But we really are celebrating our own miracle. The miracle of our existence. The miracle of who we are. Not who we can be. That's something else. But who we are right now at the present as royal princes and as royal princesses. Within us, we have a part of heaven. We have a soul that begs to be celebrated, that begs to express itself and show the world its majesty. And the first and foremost path that we ought to take in order to actualize our life potential is to recognize that we are true VIPs. We are Cohens in the deepest sense of the word. We are rabbis in the deepest sense of the world, like the story I said at the beginning. We are indeed divine. That's the first thing. I learned this from a beautiful verse that we just read in last week's portion, the portion of Ayeshev. You may recall the story of Joseph, who is a lonely, lonely young man who was sold as a slave by his own brothers, right, to Egypt. And there he faces a very strong temptation, seduction by the wife of his master, Putifar. And uh, Putifar, one day, sees Joseph coming home, and she grabs him. And she says, sleep with me. Let's read the verse, because I think the Hebrew, unfortunately, the English doesn't translate this, but, but the Hebrew conveys here a very, very powerful message that relates, again, to the miracle that we are. Who wants to read Genesis 39, 11, 12? Go ahead, please. <laughs> One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants with him saw him. He caught him by his garment, saying, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her, her hand and ran out of the house. Okay, so she caught him by his garment, big doy in Hebrew, I'll come back to that word, saying, Come to bed with me. Now, 
In Hebrew, really, the words are Vatitfos et bigdo lemor shichvaimi. She caught him by his garment saying, it doesn't really make sense, maybe in English a little more, but even in English it doesn't really make sense. It should say that she caught him by his garment and she said to him, come sleep with me. What does it mean saying? And here the commentaries say something very profound, again, which I think speaks to this very aspect. It was the garment of Joseph speaking. That's what was saying. She didn't say anything. The garment was saying to Joseph, sleep with me. What does that mean? The word for garment in Hebrew is beged. Okay? The word for uh, garment in Hebrew is beged. It is the exact same word as the word boged, which means to betray, a traitor. That's why uh, beged's uh, clothes are called bgadim. Because what you wear sometimes betrays the eye that is watching you. It's not really who you are. Or maybe not, not who you... you uh, <laughs> maybe it is who you are, but not, not so much who uh, you want to... You, you are in, the, you know, being in, in your bedroom. But again, beged is the same word as boged. What was this garment saying? This garment was saying to Joseph, sleep with me. What does this mean? What it means is that the evil inclination, that voice within us that sometimes seduces us, like the voice that seduces Joseph, comes to us and says to us, you know what? You're not that great person you think you are. You're uh, nothing. You're just a, an average guy walking in an average street and living an average life. And we sometimes listen to that voice. And we say, oh, you know what? That voice is right. I'm an average guy, so why do I think I'm so great? I should be doing average things. I should be doing even things that are beneath me, that are despicable. Sleeping with uh, the wife of Putifar. Why not? I'm not great. I'm not divine. I'll never be. So we start compromising the self, and that starts compromising our actions, our deeds. How does Joseph deal with that voice? He says, yes, I have that voice telling me that I'm not as great as I think I am. He leaves the garment in her hand, and he runs away. He says, I'm not going to even engage in that conversation. I know who I am. I'm a Joseph. I'm a righteous man. I'm great. I am a VIP. And he runs out saying, no, 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 no. These conversations are for other people. I recognize my greatness, and I will live a life of greatness. So he runs out. He leaves that betrayal of mind in the hands of the wife of Putifar and runs out. And here Joseph teaches us one of the most vital lessons in life. I think a lesson that is, to, to me, that is most important for us to teach our children. I teach, as many of you know, at Pardes Jewish Day School. And I keep reminding the children of our generation that they are indeed great. Because they are always comparing themselves to others. Oh, he has a nicer car than I do. And he, look on Facebook, he has a much better smile, he's much better looking. This. And it hurts the ego so terribly that that eventually affects also their deeds. Not just the way they view themselves, but the way they act. And then they start living lives that are lives that are compromised. And Joseph teaches us this lesson in such a big, such a powerful way. And I think that he reveals to us his secret much, much later on. Why did he, how come he maintained that consciousness that he is indeed great? Because of the way he viewed his purpose in life. The way he viewed his potential and how he needs to actualize it. Many, many years after this incident, by the way, he suffered because of this incident. He was thrown to jail. She accused him of rape. He, he lived a very challenging life. Yet he never forgot that he was great. Much later on, when he's the vice king of Egypt, his brothers come to him. <clears throat> Those same brothers that sold him to slavery. He recognizes them, as we all know. They don't recognize him. Eventually, he reveals himself to his brothers. And the first reaction his brothers have is a reaction of fear. They're afraid, gosh, he's going to take his revenge. We're the ones who sold him to slavery. Now he's so powerful, he's the vice king, he can do whatever he wants with us. And then Joseph tells him something so, so powerful, it's my favorite verse in the Torah, I'll confess. Genesis 45, 
1 to 11. Let's, let's skip to the very bottom verse. And I want to develop this point a little bit. But who wants to read? Now this is again Joseph revealing himself to his brothers. Please. Okay, listen to the words. It is not you who said, why I made them bold. It is not you who sent me here, but God. Or in other words, you didn't sell me here. You sold me as a slave. That's the reality. But that's not the way I choose to view things. I wasn't sold. I was sent. It's a whole different life perspective. Many of us walk around saying we're sold. The world is stronger than us. Let us go with the waves. What can we do? But you know what? You know what else is sold? Chairs are sold. This is sold. Tables are sold. Cups are sold. They're passive. They have no say. But Joseph was sent. Joseph said to himself, no, no, no. I'm not a passive object. I'm an active divine being. I am sent. Even when I'm in prison, I'm sent. I have to find my purpose there. Even when I'm being seduced by the wife of Putifar, I'm sent. There's a God speaking to me saying, no, you're holy. You should actualize your holiness. And that's the way he viewed his entire life, no matter whether he was in a good state or in a bad, challenging state. He always viewed himself as someone who was sent. Why? Because he recognized that God is within him, that he himself is divine. You know, uh, I've said this before, but one of the great educational tips I, I learned from my own parents, and I've, I've heard this by other parents, is that when I grew up and we, I, I did, uh, I was no perfect child, just ask them, they can give you a whole list, <laughs> actually a whole book or maybe a whole library, but uh, each time they wouldn't just uh, reprimand me by saying, hey, you're a bad boy or you're a silly boy, which is, a, by the way, a terrible thing to do because you're boxing the child is bad already. Huh? How, how is he going to see himself? How is he going to come out of that cage that you just built for him? But what they would tell me is that in Yiddish, it's called this pasnisht. In other words, it's unbecoming of you. What does this mean? It means that they saw me up here. What I did was down here. So they said it's unbecoming of you. But I think it's the most brilliant educational tip because why? It conveyed the message to me that no, I'm, I am up here. And if I'm up here, this is truly unbecoming. It's not that I've become that. I am not that. I'm here. I'm divine. I'm Joseph. And when we see ourselves as such, then we can achieve the greatest things in life. Then we can rally Then the sky. Even the sky is not the limit. You know, the, 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 one of the, the books I, I truly enjoyed reading a few years ago was a book written in 2008 by two Christian brothers, Alex and Brett Harris. You can look it up. It's called Do Hard Things. And the subtitle is, A Teenager's Rebellion Against Low Expectations. A Teenager's Rebellion Against Low Expectations. These teenagers wrote a book, why? Because they're saying to themselves, society doesn't demand for us uh, so much anymore. Why? Maybe because they don't believe in us. But we believe in ourselves. And if we believe in ourselves, we can achieve the greatest things. So give me higher expectations, not lower expectations. It's often the mistake we make with teenagers, with our children, or even with our own selves. We want to do hard things. You know, the, the, the Talmud calls children messiahs. In fact, there's a verse in Psalm, I don't bring it here, but there's a verse uh, in the book of Psalms that says, Al-tigubim shichai, do not touch my messiahs. And the Talmud says, who are those messiahs that King David is speaking about? These are the children. What does that mean? That every child is a messiah. Every child has the potential to redeem the world, to transform everything in this planet. He's a Messiah. But what can we do? Sometimes we don't see it. And that's where the mistake begins. It's like the story with the camel. You remember the story with the camel? Baby camel is here at the Phoenix Zoo, tells his mother, Mom, why did God create us with such huge humps? And the mommy camel says, well, that's because we... 
uh, traverse the desert, and sometimes we don't have water for months. So that's where we store water. Great. Why did God create us with such long eyelashes? That's because the sandstorms in the desert, and God wants to protect the eyes. So why did God create us with such huge toes? And that's because uh, there's, there's a lot of, of uh, nastiness on the floors of the desert, so God wants to protect us. The, babies who tell, uh, the baby camel then tells uh, his mother here at the Phoenix Zoo, I heard them the other day. <laughs> the baby camel says, so then mommy, if God gave us all these gifts, what are we doing stuck in a cage in the Phoenix Zoo? <laughs> and it's so often the case. God gave us all these gifts. What are we doing stuck in our own mentalities, in our own cages? I think that's the first step. The first step towards actualizing one's potential is first to recognize your potential and to recognize that you have a potential that is infinite. It's so, so important. I, I can't say it enough to children these days because, again, we live in a society, in a comparative society, where everyone has to keep up with the Jones. But... Um, they are special. We are special. We are Josephs. And therefore, I think that's really the first step. And this is exactly what this prayer is saying. First of all, Valanisim. First of all, you're a miracle. I want to connect this before we go to the second step to yet another idea that's very much, again, interconnected with this. And that's the word ness. I love the Hebrew language because it has so many words that, has some, that have multiple meanings and it sheds a whole new a whole new depth, um, to, not just to the language, but to the words themselves. But the word for miracle in Hebrew is what? Ness, ness right? Vala nisim, ness. Now, do you know that that's the exact same word as the word for trial, <laughs> challenge, difficulty, nisayon. It's the same shorish, same root word, ness. And why? Because as uh, the sages tell us here in, in this next reference, that every trial forces a person to dig within him, to find the strength to survive that trial. And the more we dig, the more we realize we had strengths that we never knew we had. And that's why, in a way, that in and of itself is a miracle. And that leads to a miracle. When we find those strengths and then we can actualize them, we recognize, gosh, we are great. Then that nisayon, that trial, creates a ness, creates a miracle. That's the power of, of this word. But let's read, let's read it in the words of Rabbi Shnel Zaman of Leali, who was one of the great Hasidic masters of some 300 years ago. But this is what he says about this word. I think the, the words themselves are very powerful. Who wants to read the next reference? For the Lord your God is testing you. Menasseh. Menasseh, right. Menasseh, right? Mm -hmm. From the word nest, which means an elevated banner. God tested Abraham can also be read as God exalted Abraham. When Moses says God is testing you, it can be translated as God is exalting you. God is elevating you. Why? Because God believes in you. Right. God believes in us. And what's left is for us to believe in ourselves. Really, I, I want to give a blessing here to everyone who's going through any type of challenge or trial that that strength that you find within you really should uh, ensure that you overcome that challenge and that you only grow from it in health and in joy. Amen. But that's, that's number one. Number two, the other um, adjective that the, the sages use here in this prayer of al Nisim is ve'ala purkan. What's interesting in Hebrew, again, the word purkan doesn't just mean like we translated it, uh, the redemption, salvation. Purkan in Hebrew also come from, comes from the word lefarek, piruk. Piruk in Hebrew really means to unleash. Why? Because the second step to actualizing our life potential is once we've created, uh, once we've uh, seen ourselves as holy, as Joseph's, again, as as really great, divine beings, then we have to actualize that. Then we have to unleash that soul. Then we have to start living a life 
in which that soul is the soul that makes the choices and the decisions. That's, that's the second step. Now, how do we find that? How do we find what our soul really desires, what our soul's purpose is? For that, and I know some of you have heard me say this, but for that, I have a little theory called the POP theory, P-O-P-P. That's why I wrote this. The call to reveal and unleash a miracle, P-O-P-P. That theory is divided into four different steps. The first one is the first P, stands for personality. The second one is the O, that stands for opportunity. The third one is that second P, stands for people. And the fourth one is that third P that stands for places. If we can be completely in tune with the personality that we have, that greatness that we have, with the opportunities that God gives us each and every day, with the people that we meet, and with the places that we go to and ask ourselves, why are we there? Why are we meeting those people? Then we can also actualize that greatness, actualize that holiness. What does this mean? First, the personality. I think everyone is born differently, not just physically, even identical twins, right? Does anyone have identical twins here? No? Okay, fine. But even identical twins, as you probably know, are, are, not, are not exactly identical. It's true, I think, for personalities. Um, there are tests right now out of Boston. A doctor was telling me, some of you may know him, Dr. Melmed of the Melmed Center was telling me that there's a test, a new test out of Boston that says that uh, you can actually tell what the temper of your child will be from the age of one day old. <laughs> How so? Now, I just had a baby, and I was tempted to try this on him, but there are things that you'd rather not know, so I have yet to... <laughs> I have yet to try it, but um, apparently, this is what they say, okay, doctors out of Boston, this is what they say, but they say that, you know, when you push a baby's head backwards, then usually the baby goes like this with his arms, right? Now, if you push the baby's head backwards like this, and he went multiple times this way, that means you got a hot-tempered baby coming to you. That means this, this person is going to be a very uh, tempered a human being, okay? But that's because he went multiple, he went like this many times, okay? <laughs> but in any case, what I'm trying to say is that there are personalities, each, one, each and every one of us, as, as personalities that are different than the other. Everyone is created differently. I think that's the beauty of God's creation because I can only be I. You can only be you. And for humanity to be complete, I have to be I, and you have to be you. We each have to contribute what we only can contribute to society because God created us differently. So there's something that I can do that I can bring to society through that personality of mine that no one else can do. It's almost like a symphony with all sorts of different instruments. Everyone has their own instrument. And we ought to find out what that instrument is, believe in its greatness, of course, as we said, is point one, but then stop playing it. Now, their personality, of course, includes skills, talents. If you're an athlete, you should be an athlete. You should act. You should, you should do athleticism. If you're an artist, that's what you should do. Some people have many hobbies. You should pursue each and every one of them because God gave them to you. There's a beautiful Hasidic expression that says that birth is God's way of saying that you matter. Birth is God's way of saying that you matter. Why? Because otherwise God wouldn't have created you. But if he created you, that means that he believes in something that you and only you can bring in you, in your existence. So we ought to, to, to really be in tune with that, with that personality of us, with that first P, in order to then actualize our purpose, to then unleash it, a la purkan. That's the first, first idea. And that's what the book of Proverbs says, honor the Lord with your possessions. By the way, the Midrash has something that's very much connected uh, to say about this, let's read the Midrash. Who wants to read here the reference in the Midrash, Yalkut Shimoni? Please. It states, Honor the Lord with your possessions. This means with whatever He has graced you. For example, if you have a beautiful voice, lead the communal prayer. Shia, the nephew, is Rabbi Aragar Hapapura, the mm -hmm. beautiful voice. Rabbi Aragar used to tell him, Shia, my son, rise and honor the Lord. Right, very good, excellent, excellent. And that, and that, I think, also schools, by the way, should be aware of that. Uh, I don't know if anyone here is any, involved in any school or any type of educational system, but I think that's, 
every child is different, and we ought to, to actually encourage, instead of boxing all the children uh, and, and measuring them according to grades, we should actually encourage their uniqueness, encourage them to unleash it as much as possible. That's number one. Number two, the O is the opportunities that God gives us every day. I'm not talking about the big opportunities. Of course, we, thank God, are, are blessed here in America. We have different opportunities than, say, children in Africa have. But I'm talking about the day-to-day, -day, the detailed opportunities. For example, the opportunities that God gives us uh, when he presents to us a, a mitzvah to perform. I, I, uh, sometimes we want to stay an extra hour in bed. But there's a mitzvah to perform. Someone needs your help. It's an opportunity that God presented you that day. So we got to jump. we got to seize every opportunity that we have. That's also part of actualizing our greatness. God gave you the opportunity because he believes that you, that great you, can fulfill it, and only that great you can fulfill it. That's why he gave it to you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. You know, the, the story that I like to tell, there's, there's a thing called, in science called multiple discoveries, and it speaks of a theory that, it, that, that is just proven, it's, it's reality, that um, many of the great discoveries of our history were actually discovered by multiple people at the same time. And very often, only one of them got the credit, right? But uh, the example I like to bring is the example of of the phone, who, who created, who invented the phone? Alexander Graham Bell, that's what everyone knows. A guy in, uh, Staten Island. <laughs> Thank you, what? A guy in Staten Island, a dentist. Okay, and his name? Elisha Gray. Elisha Gray. Now, Elisha, <laughs> very good. Now, Elisha Gray invented the phone, the exact same phone as Bell did during the exact same time. The legend, I don't know if it's a legend or a true story, but what I read is that apparently, Elisha Gray, Elisha Gray came to the patent office in Washington, D.C. to register his patent three hours after Alexander Bell. Now, what was he doing that morning? Why did he come so late? I don't know, but maybe he wanted to read a little more newspaper. Maybe he was uh, having wanted an extra coffee. Or maybe he hit the snooze button on his alarm clock like I do sometimes. Maybe. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Excellent. But... <laughs> But again, God gave him an opportunity in the morning, go to the patent office, don't wait. Now he missed that opportunity, and everyone remembers Bell, and barely anyone remembers, <laughs> except for one or two. I remember Elisha Gray. But uh, that's, that's what I mean by opportunities, and we're, we're, we're given those opportunities every day, and I think that's why I'd like to evoke Viktor Frankl, the author of Man's Search for Meaning, who says that life is so much more about asking what life wants from you than about asking what you want from life. One has to listen to life, to listen to those opportunities. It's not just about me. Yes, step one, first P, is about you, recognizing your greatness and, and actualizing it, actualizing the standards, the skills, and so on. But you also have to be open to, to the opportunities of life. That's why. What's the most important prayer in Judaism? What? The Shema. Good. What does the Shema mean? Hear, O Israel. What we see is not always what we get. Remember, garments betray you. But what we hear is so much more truthful, so much more profound. And when we say Shema every day, we're actually taking upon ourselves to listen to God's opportunities today, to see what he has in store for us. Because very often those are the opportunities that define us. I'll never forget the story, and I'm sure you've seen it. It's been circulating all around emails and WhatsApps and so on. But the story of... Sir Nicholas Winton, who um, uh, was a man who saved th uh, hundreds of, of kinders, of Jews, of Jewish children in the Holocaust. How so? In 1938, ladies and gentlemen, he went to Prague by mistake. He was supposed to go skiing in Switzerland. But he went to Prague for vacation. He was a successful stockbroker in England. And he decided to go to Prague for vacation to meet up with a friend. There he saw Jewish children suffering. Now, he could have said to himself, I'm on vacation. Leave me alone. It's not my job to take care of them. But he heard the opportunity. He had the Shema. And he said, no, I've got to do something about this. And he started organizing kinder transports from uh, Czechoslovakia to, to Great Britain. He saved uh, over 600 children over the war. Now, what's amazing 
is that after he gave them to adoption homes, he didn't keep in touch with them. He recorded their names, their passport numbers, and so on, but he didn't keep in touch with them. He kept that a secret for decades. I think until 1986, his wife walked into their attic one day, and she finds a book with all of these pictures of children and names. And she, Who's my husband? Am I married to a pedophile, she said. <laughs> That's what she said. And she went, and she said to him, what, what is this about? And he was forced to tell her. And then for his 100th birthday, and that's the video that's circulating, she organized a special birthday party for him. And so she asked as many survivors of, uh, of, of, of Nicholas Winton as possible to gather in the movie theater. Then the lady grabbed the microphone, and she asked, is anyone here a survivor of Nicholas Winton? And the whole room stood up. He was amazed, began to cry. But he saved not just over 600 children, but really he saved thousands and thousands of children, because those children had children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and so many more were saved, thanks to him. But why? Because there was one man who heard, who followed the Shema, who was in tune with the O, and that very often is what defines our lives, things that, that are unexpected, but those are the things that really come to define us at the end of life. So that's Number two, there's a story from Esther I'm not going to dwell on too, too much. But then number three, the, the P, the second P, and that is, I think, the people that we meet. Some people that we meet are also a part of our purpose. Of, they come to help us actualize our purpose. Some people come, by the way, for just an hour or even five minutes. You could have an impactful five-minute conversation with someone that changes your life. And some people stay there forever. They are forever, what do they call them? BFFs. <laughs> forever and ever, best friend forever. But that's, that's they, they, come and, they come and stay. Now, these people that we meet on a day-to-day -day basis or that are in our lives on a lifetime basis, these are also indicative of our purpose. They are there for us to learn from them, from them to learn from us, for us to forge a relationship that really is transformative. The, that's, that's why Benzoma famously says, who is wise, he who learns from every person. It could be the clerk at the gas station, or uh, uh, the cashier at Safeway, or wherever you go, Fry's, not going to take any sides, or uh, <laughs> Albertson, or Costco, whatever it is. It could be anyone and everyone, because there's, someone to, there's something to learn from every human being. That's part of our purpose. And the fourth one is the final P, which is places. I think the places we go to very often are part of our purpose. We might think that we're going to the Bahamas for vacation, but there's a deeper reason why we went to the Bahamas. Maybe it was to smile at someone that never received a smile in life, and you've uplifted them for the day, for the month, for the year, for, for his life. And maybe, maybe these are reasons that are much more powerful, but we never know why God sends us to places. I can tell you, I was just on a plane today, and... Um, one of my great peaceful moments is to sit on the plane when no one can bother me, but I don't have that merit, uh, that privilege today. Uh, but it turned out to be a very fruitful conversation uh, with this lady that's having a lot of issues in her life. And um, um, I'm sure, I have no doubt, God sent me to that plane, seat 13B, stuck in the middle. <laughs> Why? For me to be able to, to converse with this wonderful lady. There's, there's no doubt in my mind, but that's, that's the way we ought to view every place we go to. So those are the four things that really can help us unleash a la purkan, unleash the potential and guide it in the best, most effective way. Then the third thing is a la gvorot v'ala I brought uh, those two together because both speak of deeds, and that is that we ought to have this devotion to deed. I think uh, Judaism, I've said this many times before, but Judaism, I think, is a do-good religion. It's not a feel-good religion. It's a do-good religion. There are 613 commandments in the Torah. Most of them are action-oriented. Very few, I don't know, name, name the ones that you think are feeling or spiritual, uh, just plainly spiritual. I can think of prayer, Torah study. Otherwise, everything else is action. Respect your parents with deeds. You, the mezuzah, tefillin, these are deeds. Uh, everything else I can think of are deeds. We're deed-oriented. Why? Because Judaism understands 
a great secret of the human condition. What's the secret? That eventually you are what you do. I know Rene Descartes said, cogito ergo sum, that we think, therefore, I think, therefore I am. I think Judaism disagrees with that. I do, therefore I am. It's the deed that defines us. There's um, a lovely story. I'm not going to bore you too many stories. But there's a lovely story. It's not a Jewish story by an author by the name of Max Birnbaum. Um, maybe the author is Jewish. But it's an old book. And it's called The Happy Hypocrite. And it's about this man who was very evil. And no one wanted to marry him. And finally he fell in love with this woman, but she didn't want to marry him. So what did he do? He put a mask so that she wouldn't recognize him. He then went back to this woman and she fell in love with him, not knowing that it's the evil man that she once knew. They got married. After many years, this couple is walking down the street and one of this man's old friends recognizes him through his mask. He says to his wife, hey, your husband is a liar. It's not who you think he is. He's someone else. He's evil. I can see through his mask. He's actually wearing a mask. His wife can't believe it. He's the nicest man. He buys me flowers every day. And Max, and, uh, Max Birnbaum, the author, continues and says, no, I'll, this friend of his says, I'll prove it to you. He jumps on him and tries to detach his mask. But the more he detaches it, the more he realizes that he's detaching a part of his actual flesh because the mask had become a part of him. And I think the point of the story is, again, the more you do good, even though you might have been uh, evil, I don't think that's, that's a whole different discussion whether there's such a thing as an evil human being. I think we become evil. I have yet to meet an evil baby. I don't think we're born evil. No one is born evil. Uh, but, but even those people who seem evil, if they do good again and again, they buy flowers for their wives each and every day, then they become good. We really believe that. And I, uh, let's, let's read here the reference in Maimonides on the third page now. A, a beautiful law, beautiful halakha that pertains to the mitzvah of tzedakah, of charity. Who wants to read this reference at the very top of the page? In many instances. Anyone? Please. Okay. In many instances, it is better to give needy recipients one gold coin on a thousand different occasions than to give them a thousand gold coins all at the same time. Why? Because if a person opens up his hand again and again 1,000 times, the trait of giving becomes part of it. Isn't that beautiful? If a person gives again and again and again, he becomes a giver. If you only give once, then you don't transform yourself. But the more you give, the more you become a giver. The more you love and you translate that love into action, the more you become a loving person. You know, it's interesting, but again, another Hebrew word. I'm not gonna, I hope I'm not boring you with too many Hebrew words. But the word for love in Hebrew is what? Ahava. Ahava, the Talmud says, comes from the word hav. Hav. The middle word in Ahava is hav, which means to give. Love is not just a feeling. Love is an action. It's to give. That's why they say that the heart is a muscle. The more you work on that muscle, the more the healthier it is. The more you love, the more you give, the more it transforms you. But that's what we believe. It reminds me of what Arnold Palmer, if there's any golfer here, you'd appreciate that. But he was once asked, how come you're so good at golf? And he said, I'm not good. I'm just lucky. And then he paused for a little bit and he said, but you know, it's funny because the harder I work, the luckier I get. And it's so true. The more you do things, the more you become those things. The more uh, you work, the, the, the more that luck uh, becomes a part of you, that hard work becomes of you. Uh, becomes a part of you. And um, I, I want to connect this just to, to one idea of Hanukkah, the Code of Jewish Law, year 6712, uh, speaks of how many candles one should light each night of Hanukkah. <clears throat> and in fact, this is rooted in a Talmudic argument between Hillel and Shammai, two of the greatest scholars of uh, before the times of the destruction of the Second Temple, 100 BCE, more or less. But Hillel says one should light one candle the first night, as we do it today, Right? Two candles the second night, three candles the third night, and so on. Shammai disagrees. He says you should light eight candles the first night, and seven the second, six the third, and so on and so forth. What are they arguing about? Hillel's perspective is very refreshing. Hillel says, don't think you can do everything at once. That's impossible. Judaism is not an all-or-nothing religion. It's not. 
people who, in my eyes, take so much upon themselves overnight, I don't think that can last. Everyone is in, on their own spiritual journey, walking their own journey, as we said before, and one has to grow step by step. Nelson Mandela has a great book called The Long Walk to Freedom. It's a long walk to freedom, a step after a step after a step after a step. But the more you walk, the more you get closer to freedom, to becoming free. And that's Hillel's perspective. One light the first night, two lights the second night. Do more and more and more. And the more light you light, the more light you'll become. The brighter you yourself will become. And that's his perspective. So that's number uh, three. I know it says number three here for Alam Ilhamad, but it's really number four, number three you already studied. Alam Ilhamad goes back to the very question we asked at the beginning. Yes, please. <coughs> but Shammai says to light them all first. Mm -hmm. So just for comparison. For comparison, Shammai was a fanatic. Um, and, I mean, not, not, <laughs> not in a bad way. Fanatic doesn't, <laughs> not in a bad way. Um, he was an architect, by the way, who was very, very orderly. It was uh, his way or the highway usually. That's why he kicked out that convert who wanted to learn the entire Torah on one foot. Remember that story? He kicked him out with a ruler because he was in the middle of designing some architecture. Um, that was Shammai. But uh, Shammai's perspective was well, either you do it all or you don't do it at all. Uh, for example, uh, there's another <laughs> argument which leads to other things. But uh, between Hillel and Shammai, for example, um, how do you praise a bride at her wedding day? Hillel says you should say, Kalana Ava Chasuda. What a, a kind and beautiful bride she is. Shammai says you shouldn't say that all the time. Why? Because what if the bride is ugly? You can't say she's beautiful. So again, see how strict it is? You gotta, you gotta <laughs> stick the way. You can't be flexible in any shape or form. Hillel responded, no, I'm sorry. Brides are always beautiful. If not to you, then always to their husbands. So you should say beautiful, you're not lying. But, but that was Shammai. Very strict, very, uh, uh, you know, again, an all or nothing guy. Um, Hillel was much more understanding of the human spirit, of the human condition. And therefore, by the way, we follow Hillel. In every law possible, we follow Hillel. It says that when Mashiach will come, the Messiah will come, will follow Shammai, because maybe then we'll be elevated to such a level of divine consciousness that we can take upon ourselves and choose so much, uh, take upon ourselves so much. But until then, we have to follow Hillel, because that's, that's who we are. Um, one step at a time. But again, the focus is on the deed. The more we do, the more we become what we do. Um, so that's, that's number three. Number four, Ve'ala Milchamot, goes back to that initial question. Because we praise God, we thank God for what? For the wars? For the wars? We, as we said, aren't we peace-loving people? Do we really want wars? I, you know, the, the, I'm reminded of Shlomo Kalabach, the singing rabbi, who, once, uh, who was interviewed during the Yom Kippur War. And he's, uh, he was asked the question of what is the difference really between a terrorist shooting at you and you shooting at them? You're both shooters. You're both snipers. You're both killing. Shlomo Kalabach said the difference is simple. When I pick up my rifle, I think of when will this war end so that I can kill as least people as possible. When a terrorist picks up his rifle, he thinks the opposite. How many, what's the maximum of people I can kill? But we're not peace-loving people. So why the wars? Why ala milchamot? And I think what this really refers to is not the wars. We, we are against wars. We, we, that's, that's, that's always the last resort in Judaism. But what type of war are we thinking about here? Are we writing about? Are we thanking God about? This war is the inner war, the courage, the resilience, the will to fight through each and every challenge of life that we ought to have. Because if step one is recognizing our greatness, Step two is unleashing it through the pop theory. And step three, as we said, is to focus on deed, focus on doing and doing and doing and not just feeling, but doing and doing. Then we will inevitably face challenges. Hardships will come our way. 
Difficulties will arouse. That's what life is about. No life is smooth sailing. And for that now, the sages come and say, Don't forget the Jewish spirit. The Jewish spirit fights through them all because it believes that it can overcome them all. That's what the milchamot really refers to. And, and really, it's, it's very much connected to the Hanukkah story because the Hanukkah story is a beautiful miracle. But my friends, it didn't last, unfortunately. It lasted for about 150 years. The Maccabees were in power, but then we went right down the drain, back to where we were before the Hanukkah miracle. <clears throat> this time with the Romans, with a different enemy, but same state of mind. And therefore, we ask God, give us the will to fight that they didn't have. After 150 years, they gave up. They surrendered. They were so broken that they felt no need, no, no hope, no, no faith. They had no faith to continue. But give us that milchama, that spirit, so that we can endure our own uh, challenges and difficulties. This is how uh, this commentary is, is conveyed to us by Rabbi Yosef Shlomo Kahnman. Rabbi Yosef Shlomo Kahnman was, was a man, by the way, who... Um, he was the head of the Ponovish Yeshiva. Some of you may have heard it actually today. It was in the news because one of the great uh, rabbis of Israel today passed away. There were about 250,000 people at his funeral in Jerusalem, uh, Rabbi Steinman. He was uh, at one point in his life, he was 104. At one point in his life, he was the head of uh, the same Yeshiva, the same house of study, the house is about 2,000 students um, in Bnei Brak, as Rabbi Kahnman was. Uh, Rabbi Steinman, by the way, the man who passed away, I just read before coming here, I was so moved, and I'll share it with you. I just read his will. And in his will, he asked that no one eulogizes him, that they buy as simple of a plot as possible, no need to waste money on a plot, that they don't call him by the name righteous or God-fearing, that the only thing that he wants on his tombstone is Aaron Steinman, the son of, I think, Nehemiah was his father. That's all he wants. Here he's buried, the son of Aaron, the son of Nehemiah. He said he doesn't want people to call their children after him. The most humble man, you should read it, Google it. it it's unbelievable. This, this, he was one of the great, really great minds in uh, the Jewish world, yet he saw himself so, uh, with such humility. It reminds me, Shai Agnon, the Israeli author, I'm sorry if I'm deviating towards all these stories, but Chai Agnon um, received the Nobel Prize of Literature in the 60s. And when they came to announce it to him, they came with a photographer to take pictures so that they can publish, publish, publish that picture in newspapers saying, this is the Nobel Prize uh, winner uh, for literature this year. So they asked him to take a piece of paper and act as if he's writing, because that's who he was. He was an author. So he took a piece of paper and wrote, looked at the camera, they took a few pictures, and they left. But someone stayed behind and said, I'd like to see what he wrote. After all, he's a great author. Let me see what he wrote. Do you know what he was writing as pictures were taken of him? Pictures that were going to be published all around the world. He was writing the verse that Abraham said about himself. I am but dust and ashes. I am but dust. That's what he was writing. But that Rabbi Kahanman reminded me of that. In any case, uh, Rabbi Steinitz. But Rabbi Kahanman... He was the head of that same yeshiva, gives this interpretation about the word milchamot, wars. Let's, let's read this, the Hanukkah story. Yet sadly, the Maccabees' victory didn't last. The dynasty of the Hasmonean family became entrenched in civil war and corruption. 210 years after Hanukkah, in 68 CE, the temple was destroyed, this time by the Romans. Jerusalem was plundered, Israel was decimated, and the Jewish people exiled. That is why we reserve our last thanking for the wars. We are expressing gratitude for the fact that we have never given up the fight. We never stop fighting for life, justice, and goodness. Right. I think that has been the, the secret to Jewish survival. That's why, by the way, think about this. But we're celebrating Hanukkah tonight. Uh, why are we celebrating Hanukkah for eight days? Because they found a jar of oil, right? Judah the Maccabee found a small jar of oil that was supposed to last for one day and it lasted for eight days. So we celebrate Hanukkah for eight days. But think about this. The miracle itself was for how long? Not for eight days. That jar of olive oil was supposed to last for one day. So the miracle itself was 
Seven days, right? So we should have seven days of Hanukkah. Now I understand that we want an extra day of Hanukkah gelt and donuts and uh, all those things. But still, why celebrate eight days? It doesn't make sense. The miracle was for seven days. And I think it's obvious, based on this. We are including the first day, even though, yes, we knew that that olive oil would last for one day. Why? Because we are celebrating that Jewish spirit of Allah milchamot, of never stopping to fight for life, for goodness, for light, to overcome darkness. That's who we are. There's a great book, another book that I would recommend called High Adventure by um, Sir. He's a Sir, Edmund Hillary. He was the first climber of Mount Everest. And um, he writes how he finally achieved his feat in 1953. But in 1952, the year before, uh, he was honored at this big event with a picture of Mount Everest behind him. Uh, and they were uh, really honoring him for trying to achieve, to, to uh, reach the peak of Mount Everest. But he was all uh, upset with himself. And when he came into the room, and this is a story he tells in this book, he looks at Mount Everest and he shouts at Mount Everest saying, Mount Everest, I will overcome you. I will reach your peak because you have stopped growing. I am still growing. You have stopped growing. I am still growing. In a way, I think that's, that's really the Allah milchamot, that Jewish spirit. We know that we're always, always growing. And it's, it's, it's incumbent upon us to be as resilient as possible. I want to I transition that into a different idea, but again, develop the same essential idea and, and ask the question of why is it that if you look at the prayer of the high priest in the Holy of Holies, on the holiest day of the year on Yom Kippur, right? The, holy, the holiest man, the high priest, on the holiest day of the year, entered the holiest place in the world, the Holy of Holies in the temple. And there he had to say a prayer on behalf of the nation. You would think that this prayer would be at least slightly spiritual, right? It's not at all. It's the most pragmatic prayer in the world. There's nothing spiritual about it whatsoever, nothing holy about it whatsoever. This is the prayer. Let's read the prayer, but I want to focus on one part of this prayer. The following was the prayer of the Kohen Gadol. Does anyone want to read this? Please, please. The following was the prayer of the Kohen Gadol. Thank you. May it be your will, Lord our God and God of our fathers, that this coming year shall be for us and for all your people, the house of Israel, wherever they are, rich in rain if it is hot. May your people, the house of Israel, not be dependent for their livelihood upon one another, nor upon any other people. Huh. May it be a year that no woman suffers miscarriage, and that the trees of the field yield their produce, and may the ruler of the Jewish people always be appointed from among the house of Judah. Right. So, anything spiritual about this? He speaks about rain, about uh, trees of the field yielding the produce, and then the, again... May be that no woman suffers miscarriage. What does that mean? I mean, it's, it's important, of course. But <clears throat> why pray about this then at that moment? And there's a beautiful commentary, and I'll keep this short, that says that, no, what really he's praying about is each and every one of us, whether you're pregnant or not, whether you're a woman or not. Because we are all pregnant in a way. With what? With dreams. When we are born, we have many dreams. We always ask our children, what do you want to be when you grow up? My answer was fireman. <laughs> no, what was your answer? But what do you want to be when you grow up? We, we are born and we create for ourselves many, many dreams. And then we reach a point in our lives in which we say, gosh, I don't know, life was that hard. Let me erase some dreams. Let me size the other dreams into two, into half. And uh, I just live a suburban life. And here the Kohen Gadol is telling us, no, 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 no. Keep dreaming. Keep fighting. Continue to believe not just in yourself, but in those dreams, in actualizing those dreams. Because you could do it if you have that spirit of bilchamot. I think it's one of the worst things, but, but you know that uh, I say this again. I, I'm a teacher of children uh, very often. I myself have nine. So uh, I, I, I say this to my own children. But I think that um, you know, the worst things... Uh, if, you would, if you were to compare, and maybe this is just, again, my observation, I might be totally wrong. But if I were to compare this generation with the generation of 50, 60 years ago, 
I would say that one of the great differences is in the dreams that they have. If you would stop someone in the street 50 years ago and you would ask them, excuse me, what is your big dream in life? They would tell you I want to be the best scientist in the world, or the greatest billionaire in the world. Stop someone in the street today, what is your dream in life? Say, I want to have a suburban car with a suburban house, a suburban wife, a suburban whatever. Our dreams have been compromised. And yeah, the Kohen Gadol tells us, you know, what makes the great people great? Michael Jordan is a big uh, sports hero of mine. Not human hero, but sports hero of mine. And what made him so great? That every time he walked on the basketball court, he wanted to have the game of his career. That's what made him so great. He never compromised those dreams. And it's true with every hero you can think of. Einstein faced, so I don't know if you watched the Genius series of, of Einstein, but he faced so many naysayers, so many challenges in his own life, but he never compromised his dream to be a scientist. He had offers of being other things, but he never compromised that. He didn't let his, his, his pregnancy miscarry, his pregnancy of dreams. And in a way, I think that's what the milchamot really again refers to. We have to have those dreams, cling to them, and make sure that we carry them through all of the hardships of life. That's what it's about. In a way, that's what Rabbi Akiva stands for. Here in the Midrash, we have a story. But I want to finish with the last two quotes, one a Hasidic quote and one from Harry Chapin. Who, um, uh, I'm not going to sing that song. You can sing it for me if you want. But he died tragically in a car crash. You know his story, I'm sure, at the age of 38. Um, a very talented man who was not just a musician, but um, dedicated his life really to saving uh, poor children of the world. And uh, there's a beautiful quote that really summarizes, I think, this class uh, beautifully. But Rabbi Simcha Bunei comes first, the Hasidic master, who says as follows. One of my favorite Hasidic quotes. Does anyone want to read it? Yes, please. If you lose your money, you lost nothing. Money comes and money goes. Right. If you lost your courage, your resolution, your determination, your milchamot, then you've lost it all. And Harry Chapman, speaking of those dreams that we need to pursue and we need to, to fight for, ala milchamot, he has a song called I Wonder What Would Happen to This World. I know some of the words are, are cut off here, but we'll, we'll finish them. Does anyone want to read this last quote? Oh, if a man tried. Oh, if a man tried to take his time on earth and prove before he died what one man's life could be worth. Very good. I wonder. Continue. What would happen to this world? Good. Very good. Oh, excellent. I thought it was cut off just by me. Right. I wonder what would happen to this world if we could really pursue those dreams uh, through life, through all of the hardships of life. Gosh, this world will be so different. I conclude with a cute story about a young child whose mother wanted him to play the piano. So she wanted to ignite that desire in him, and she took him to a Chick Corea concert. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, I'm a big fan of Chick Corea. And she got really good seats. And there she met someone uh, that was a friend of hers. So she stands up and goes and speaks to this friend, uh, not realizing that the concert is about to begin. When the lights go off, she returns to her seat, and she sees that her child is nowhere to be found. He had disappeared. Lights go on, and what does she see? Her child sitting on a piano, playing his old McDonald's at a farm. And all of a sudden, you see Chikoria coming on stage, and she's all embarrassed, turning red and blue and purple. And Chikoria takes one arm around the left side of the child, other arm around the right side of the child. And he says to the child, keep playing, don't quit. Keep playing, don't quit. And together they create this most beautiful sound, this most beautiful composition, sweetest music. But in a way, that's what God tells us. If we can recognize our greatness, then actualize it with the pop theory. Focus on deed and pursue the loftiest dream, then God will come also and say to us, keep playing. Don't quit. Your life and your potential is worth gold and more. And the world wants to see it because the world needs it. Thank you very much.
Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.